Hey, this is Ed Ronco, and you're listening to the Up North Lowdown from Interlochen Public Radio. This week, we've got a couple stories for you about the disturbing realities of U.S. history, specifically slavery and the treatment of Native Americans. But more to the point, we're going to hear how people here in northern Michigan are telling these stories in ways that seem more tangible and more personal than what you might find in history books. In Traverse City this week, the combined choirs of two high schools got together to perform a choral work about the life of the abolitionist Harriet Tubman, who escaped slavery before leading others to freedom via the Underground Railroad. They're going to tell us how working on this music made Tubman's story a little more real in their lives, and we'll spend some time with them a little later. But we're starting with a different story, on the shores of Burt Lake near Pelston. In 1900, a sheriff and a land speculator went to a peaceful Native American settlement on a peninsula in the lake and set fire to it. The burning of the village left 25 families homeless. And a new book, A Cloud Over the Land, tells the story of the people, culture, and legal battles that took place before and after the burnout. IPR's Michael Livingston takes us to Burt Lake to learn more. On the top of a hill overlooking an icy Burt Lake, Ken Parkey walks through a small cemetery filled with a few dozen white crosses. He scans the land, looking for signs of an old settlement. I was always told it was down in that area, right down in there? Yeah, about where that little valley is there, back, kind of back over that way. That's where I was told where it was at. The people buried here died around the time of the Burt Lake burnout. Their names are written on a rock near the entrance. I don't know. This guy right here was my great-great-grandfather or not. Several of Parkey's ancestors are buried here. Aside from the sign at the entrance bearing the flag of the Burt Lake Band, you wouldn't be able to guess that a thriving native settlement stood here more than a century ago. Down the hill are lakeside cottages, and across Chickagami Trail are the old trees of the Sheboyganing Nature Preserve. Back when the village was here, this land was called Indian Point. It looked a lot different then. In the 1700s, the village would have looked more like the traditional wigwams, which is what the tribe would have lived in at that time. And of course, living in one area very near the lake. That's Deborah Richmond, member and historian of the Burt Lake Band. And then as European contact came and as lumbering came about, the availability of lumber allowed the Native Americans to then build cabins just like their neighbors, the settlers who were coming in. So at the time, this would have been log cabins with um, lumber from the sawmill. They knew we are going to need to just start living in a more permanent place here. But then came October 15th, 1900. Somewhere in the middle of the day, it was a cloudy day. It was um, starting to rain. Along came a wagon with um, several men in it. But these were not the men of the village who had left already to pick up their paychecks in Sheboygan. These men were looking for violence. One of them was the um, local sheriff. One of them was a developer um, who had been trying to get a hold of their reservation land. And the sheriff had brought several men with him um, for, for backup. 
what these men did was they came through house by house. They, they threw all of the women and children and elderly who were there for the day out of their houses. And then they started pouring kerosene on every uh, single cabin, one by one. The wooden cabins would have been shimmering with the oily yellow fuel, a pungent smell in the air. They lit it and they burnt the entire village down. The law that the men said gave them permission to do that would be challenged for decades to come. The developer claimed that the Native Americans um, owed taxes on the property and that he had purchased the tax lien. Over and over, he had come and told them that, and they had told him, no, this is reservation land. They had the documentation. They had, they had been making sure over the years they'd done everything they could to make sure everybody understood this was the reservation land, but to no avail. And so this was his way of evicting um, in this horrible way of arson and burning their houses down. St. Mary's Catholic Church, its cemetery, and a log cabin rectory were the only things that survived the blaze. That's where Ken Parkey drives by now. While the church eventually came down after being used as the land developer's pig barn, he says you can still see traces of it behind the trees. The old church that they didn't burn was right back in there. The footing is still back in there someplace. And the church property was 260 feet across the back and around 800 feet from the shoreline back that way. That's what the church used to own. And all they got left now is the cemetery. A quote from A Cloud Over the Land says the Burt Lake Band responded with grief and with practicality and with memory. Richmond says the grief is still felt today. Only now when we can tell our story and when people can hear our story, are we allowed to start healing? Because we never seem to get past that point of, you know, we would like to focus on the good parts of our culture, um, but there's this just big piece that is just so, um, it very much is a cloud over, over our families and over our history because we want to right the wrongs that happened to our ancestors. And, you know, with, with Anishinaabe families, ancestry is everything, family is everything. And so we do still, we do still grieve for, for this huge loss. A cloud of the land goes into numerous efforts to erase Burt Lake Band history. Even now, the band is trying to obtain federal reaffirmation, which would return the label of sovereign nation to the Northwest Peninsula on Burt Lake. Richmond says she hopes the book will remind the region and the country the band still remains. Over the years, some of the thinking about Native Americans has been, well, those poor people, they just really don't know what's going on. That has never been the case. Um, right at the beginning of European contact, uh, Native Americans um, have fully understood what's been happening as far as um, how things are changing and how this, this culture that is coming and just overpowering our own culture and leaving us no place to be, uh, our, keep as ourselves. We always knew it was right. We have proven that uh, every step along the way, we knew it was right, we knew it was rightfully ours, and we fought for it. And we would like to move on from it, but you cannot tell American history without telling about Native Americans. Because while our history books seem to erase us, we, ha we are always there and we have always been there. And this proves that even, even during these times when, they, when we've, they've tried to just make us disappear, we have not disappeared, we are still here.
The book A Cloud Over the Land is available through the Burt Lake Band website. That's one way the band is telling their story. Another is through song, like the one written in 2019 when the University of Michigan Biological Station held a recognition ceremony at the cemetery on Chickagami Trail. The song is sung by Margaret Newton. That story from IPR's Michael Livingston. We'll be right back. This is my voice. It can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on the Black experience. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. Next time on Points North, we head to the operating room. 99.3 for her temperature. Okay, need gloves, I think. 99.3. But the patient on the table is a female deer. So it's sort of the ram's horn uterus. I just reach in, get under it, lift up, follow one horn out. And there's the ovary. How one community in Ohio is solving its deer overpopulation problem by surgically removing does ovaries. That episode of Points North is available now. You can listen to it wherever you're hearing this podcast. Welcome back to the Up North Lowdown. I'm Ed Ronco. There's learning about history, and then there are these moments when we feel it. And right now, we're going to hear about one of those moments and the way some students in Traverse City were able to make an important piece of American history come alive. The combined choirs of Central and West Senior High Schools teamed up to perform a musical work that tells the story of Harriet Tubman, the abolitionist known as the force behind the Underground Railroad, which led enslaved people out of the American South and into freedom. And as we learned when we dropped by rehearsal a few weeks ago, learning this music brought them a deeper understanding not only of what she did, but also who she was. Right now, a group of high school singers are arranged in arcs in a rehearsal room tucked behind the auditorium at Traverse City Central High School. Wendy Wolf Schlarf is the music department coordinator for both schools and is leading the combined group through a rehearsal. So, it has to be, but it's not con blasto, right? Here with the text, and Follow the River tells the story of visions Harriet Tubman used to help others to freedom. It's one of five spirituals made into a larger work by the composer Ron Keane, who will be in Traverse City for the performance. Oh, no, 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 no. 
Randell McEwen sings bass in the choir. He's a senior at Central. He's African-American. And he says at first he was apprehensive about the choir taking on this work. I didn't want it to be falsely represented because musicians are storytellers, just like how bards were before. Um, and I felt like this was something that needed to be properly understood, and I wasn't sure if it was going to be that way, and I talked to them, and that was exactly how it was, and so I'm happy to be a part of it. Before rehearsing each movement, the students hear about the story behind the music, moments from the life of Harriet Tubman that defined her, the broader context of the time. And music was a big part of everything that happened then, even when it came to like fighting, like, um, what is it, the Jamaicans, they used to use music to create an entire fighting style. Like music was such a heavy part of everything in black culture during the slave times and before that. So it's an amazing thing for me to be able to apply that now here. For these students, performing this work is absolutely about the musical challenge and growing as performers, but diving into the history gives it just a little more heft. It's not our best history, right? Eric Wangaman is one of the directors of vocal music at TC West Senior High School. I mean, we know that the pieces were, um, you know, sung, passed down from generation to generation uh, because of the oppressed people. Um, but they are such an important part. And so to have the, the students know, live with and know and sing these songs, you know, they're as important as some of the other songs of our history. Well, but what I hear you saying is that there are songs in our history that sort of everybody knows and are just considered like American standards, and and these are too. And they very much are. And if we're not singing them and knowing them, then we're not looking at our at our history. I'm a huge general history, specifically American history nerd. Alex Rausch sings tenor and is a senior at TC West. And it's been really cool to sort of dive into this particular subject of Harriet Tubman and her life and her legacy. He says in classes that are trying to cover a lot of ground, all of U.S. history, for example, it can be hard to get beyond facts and figures. But singing about Harriet Tubman's life makes her more than just a name in a textbook. Now he's thinking about decisions she made, why she made them, what she thought and felt. Are you a history nerd? I am. My yeah. Both my parents were history majors, and our vacations always consist of us going to, like, Civil War battlefields and stuff. Ava Shotwell is a senior at Central. She sings alto in the choir. And like fellow student Alex Rausch, she's white. Going off of what Alex said, um, we kind of get, like, this... We get like the white man version of history. Um, and I'm in an AP US history course right now and we're actually covering very similar stuff right now. We're ending the Civil War this week, but um, you just kind of get like this very like surface level description. So we were just talking about like, oh, the slaves escaped to the North. That's like all we all we got into. And I think this that's why this project is so important because we're really diving into Harriet Tubman herself and like the actual, um, Underground Railroad itself, you're not just getting like that surface level um, description of it. Go down, go down, go down, go down, Moses, go down. And sometimes you don't just learn this music, you feel it. It actually took me a moment to really be comfortable enough to feel the music for what it is and what it what it represents for me as an African-American. Again, TC Central senior, Randell McEwen. All of this music is like songs that were sang while the workers were going at it or while they were trying to escape. And at the end of these lines and these ostinatos, there's like a wah, there's a, there's a, there's a, 
breath of exhaustion at the end. And I feel like every time I can feel it, like, I can feel weight coming off of me every time I say that line, picking it back up. It's repeated hard labor, and that's what this music is representing. Yeah, it, it feels very heavy for me as I sing it, and I, it feels very real. I, I think that's the, best, that's the best word I could use for it. It feels very real when I sing it. visit with the combined choirs of Central and West Senior High Schools in Traverse City at a rehearsal in January. They performed this work on February 1st, the very first day of Black History Month. Okay, thanks for spending some time with us. Before we go, let's bring you up to speed on some of the things that made news in Michigan this week. Jennifer Crumbly took the stand in her own defense this week at her trial in Oakland County for involuntary manslaughter. Prosecutors say she and her husband bought her son Ethan the gun that he used to kill four students at Oxford High School in 2021, and that they ignored warnings from school officials who asked the parents to take him home on the day the shootings occurred. She told the jury this week that she likely saw disturbing text messages written by her son, but that they did not stand out to her at the time. Her husband, James Crumbly, faces a separate trial on similar charges in the coming weeks. The Michigan Attorney General's office has asked a federal judge to dismiss a legal challenge to the state's reproductive rights amendment. The AG's office says the plaintiffs in the case failed to show any specific harm from the amendment which enshrines reproductive rights in the Michigan Constitution. The plaintiffs say a judge should at least hear their arguments, which focus on freedom of speech and the free exercise of religious conscience. A dam in Sheboygan County might have a future, thanks to a public funding campaign. The Cornwall flooding dam in the Pigeon River Country State Forest was at risk of removal by the state. WCMU reports that state officials said it would take a, quote, miracle to save it. But then the State Department of Natural Resources dug up $1.3 million from a variety of sources, including more than half of its statewide budget for dams, and the public is hoping to raise another two hundred grand to help restore the dam. It's been a warmer week than usual this time of year, and we've had a lot of melting snow. When that happens, road salt is often washed into local watersheds. But one study led by the Watershed Center of Grand Traverse Bay shows that it's not always the case that that pollution is severe. In the Elk Rapids Chain of Lakes area, chloride levels were lower than researchers expected. That said, they're going to turn their attention now to more urban watersheds like Kids Creek in Traverse City, where there are more roads and parking lots, and they are expecting numbers to be higher there. Hey, speaking of melty snow, the Gaylord Snowmobile Festival was canceled this weekend. Just not enough out there to make it work. Not the first time that's happened either, but organizers say they are hoping that future events will proceed, despite what seem to be steadily warmer winters in northern Michigan.
That's it for the Up North Lowdown. You heard a story from Michael Livingston this week, and we want to say thanks to the TCAPS Music Department for letting us go behind the scenes. Our producer is Max Copeland. The music that was not sung by a choir in this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Ed Ronco. And hey, we'd love it if you would join IPR for our Pints North trivia events sometime. They're back for a second season and put on by the Points North podcast team. We're going to leave you this week with one of last season's questions. Question number eight. Which of the following Michigan towns does not share the same name with the town in Wisconsin? Okay, so there were four choices that you could pick. Portage, Monroe, Arcadia, and Sheboygan. I picked, I don't know, it was a long time ago. I picked Portage or something because I know that there's a Sheboygan in Michigan and one in Wisconsin. So what city does not exist in both states? It's Sheboygan. Here, that one was a trick question because it's spelled differently. And I have to say that really ticked me off, to be honest. The crowd didn't like it much either. That's the reaction we're looking for, so you're just fueling us when you, when you boo. Truth be told, that question was actually one of the most fun parts of the evening. Just be aware there might be a trick question or two. So come join us, test your Great Lakes knowledge, cheer, boo if you want, I guess. And I promise you will have a great time. It's going to be fun. These happen at destinations mostly around northern Michigan, but we've also got one coming up in Grand Rapids. Details on all of this are at pointsnorthpodcast.org which is also where you can hear past episodes where a lot of this season's questions are coming from. I'm just saying, you can study up if you want. Hey, thanks for listening, and have a great week. Sheboygan. I mean, really, Sheboygan? Watch out for those curveballs. Patrick sprinkled them in here. In games, they're just immersed, and that music becomes a part of their life and their world. Composer Pedro Bronfman joins us to discuss his score for the intense first-person shooter Far Cry 6. We'll hear a variety of music that brings to life the fictional Caribbean island of Yara. I'm Keith Brown. Join me as we explore the music of Far Cry 6 this week on Gameplay. You can stream full episodes of Gameplay on demand and view playlists at GameplayShow.org.